Hello and welcome to Minding Your Mind, all about your mind and how it works, about mental illness and about mental health. With me is Professor Ian Hickey, psychiatrist and co-director of the Brain and Mind Centre at the University of Sydney. And today we're talking about obsessive compulsive disorder, OCD. To its friends, you probably know that OCD is is having repetitive and intrusive thoughts or feeling the need to repeat routines like washing your hands, checking the doors are locked. And there's a fine line between checking something, I think I locked the windows before bed, but I might just check, and having repeated thoughts or feeling compelled to repeat actions to the extent that it begins to interfere with your life. There's a fine line between having routines and patterns. I get up, wash my face, clean my teeth, get dressed, have breakfast, make a coffee, then start work. Many of us do things in exactly the same way every morning. And those routines and patterns becoming obsessive and getting in the way of our lives. So what is OCD? What is the line between having some patterns and routines and it being a psychological condition? How do you know when patterns and routines become something you should address? Why does it happen? And how do you treat it? Ian, this is my guess. And it's a guess because you're the expert and I'm just the guy. OCD is about people trying to reduce their anxiety about the huge realms of uncertainty in the world by proving to themselves over and over again that they have some agency, some control of their environment. I just checked the door is locked. So I know that it's locked. So no one can break in. So I'm in control of my house. How wrong am I? Mm, Mildly to very wrong. (laughs) So, but a lot of people have been on your team on this over a lot of years. So OCD has classically been thought of as an anxiety disorder because obviously when people have these intrusive thoughts or compulsive behaviours and they try and not do those things, they experience a great deal of anxiety and they do feel the sense of loss of control that something terrible would happen. So if we back up a bit to what's what. So let's just say obsessional personalities. We all know them. Many of us live with them. Some of us are them. You know, we have certain traits, and you said rituals and ways of doing it in the world in a particular way. That so, so just back up even purpose. further, when you say an obsessional personality, what is that? I mean, we all get obsessive about something at some point. Let's just say many of us know that some are people are more rigid. They're more mm. fixed. They only can do things in routine. They can only have the house clean. They can only do things in a certain order. The day cannot yeah. proceed unless done in the usual way. The newspapers people used to have, it used to be folded in a certain way. You know, right. washing had to be done in a certain way. There's a, there's a rigidity and a fixed nature of doing things that has, let's say, it has an upside, okay? There is some point <laughs> to order as distinct from chaos and some degree, as you would do, of checking behaviour. I kind of like doctors who check before they inject. I kind of like airline pilots who walk around and check that the wheels and wings are all there before they fly. You know, that kind of cautiousness, carefulness, appropriate checking of particular things before proceeding with dangerous things or other things has a place. Hand washing after the bathroom. Other sets of things, you know, I like surgeons who wash their hands before operating quite a lot. Mm. You know, these kind of things which you might otherwise call obsessional and they have a certain routine, the certain things that often have a great deal of sense attached to them. Not necessarily, but, but often people with obsessional personalities 
can't be flexible. They just have to do that all the time. Or, 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 they feel, or they feel uncomfortable. They can just feel not right. Yeah, so when they're doing it, they're fine. If you try to stop them doing it, they're not fine. So then their anxiety goes up. So your earlier comment about the anxiety thing is actually the behaviour comes first, the anxiety comes second, actually. The anxiety is a consequence of not doing it in a particular way. So obsessional people do things, and when they're doing the things the way they want to do them, they're not anxious. So obsessional personalities get anxious when you mess with their routine, when you move the newspaper to where it shouldn't be, where you don't fold the washing the right way, when you leave the doors open that they would rather close and you haven't done those particular things, then they get anxious. Now, obsession, so obsessionality as a personality trait is extremely common. And some people would say, you know, people are totally chaotic and dirty and uh, they're not very nice people either. So there's a spectrum of that. But OCD, the disorder, the condition, it's kind of different. So I'm going to go with the, actually, it's categorically different to obsessional personalities. And to, to break it down, there's the obsessions. That's the thinking bit. That's the intrusive thoughts. And generally about something terrible. Terrible thoughts come into your head and or terrible things are going to happen if you don't do things. For example? If I don't wash my hands 15 times, my kids are going to catch infection. I'm going to cause my kids to get a terrible infection. I'm going to spread an infection out there in the wider world. If, if I don't check that the doors are locked eight times, I might have left it unlocked and someone will come in and kill us all. Yep. Someone's going to come in and rape and kill my children. Someone's going to come and abduct the children. Something really catastrophic, really terrible. Things that you go, hang on a second. The chance that that's going to happen. And you say to people, well, what's the chance that's going to happen? They go, well, not really very high. But that's not going to stop me from going and checking the locks 15 times because yeah. – Despite I know the fact that this is irrational or very unlikely or almost impossible right, and certainly not actually linked to whether I do it or not, it's not going to stop me actually doing the behaviour. I'm going to go ahead and do it. So the notion that the people know it's irrational, so they know it's sort of a crazy thought, really, but that doesn't stop them thinking it. But more importantly, the compulsion bit, the behaviour bit, they feel they need to go ahead. And until they go ahead with that particular behaviour, that, that thought is then overwhelming. And the anxiety associated with that is overwhelming anxiety. It isn't just being a bit anxious and a bit worked up. It's actually not being – it's being very agitated and very distressed until they so, do actually do the behaviour. So what comes first, the thought, i.e. I have to – I have to wash my hands, or the action, I wash my hands, and then the thought comes, I need to wash them again, or are they too linked to, di to distinguish? So in the OCD sense, the classic chicken and egg argument, okay, which did come right. first? You know, were you doing it? <laughs> and if you don't do it, then these catastrophic thoughts follow, or the catastrophic thoughts. So if we go back another step and say, when does OCD, severe OCD typically start? It starts in childhood with the yeah. behaviour, you know, the kids are often doing things, washing excessively, checking excessively, counting excessively, not doing things, not stepping on cracks, not doing particular things. And they're doing things in a very obsession, routine-like way, repetitive way, repetitive behaviours. And come back to this, I've kind of because uh, you see this in other conditions like autism, and it's related to other conditions like Tourette syndrome or tics, motor tics where people twitch or they say those kind of words that we shouldn't say in public in certain kinds of ways. So that actually in brain development and abnormal brain development, you see a whole lot of other phenomena of repetitive behaviours and uncontrolled behaviours, the brain spitting stuff out, which precedes thoughts about it. So in adults, in adults, people assume the thoughts come first, followed by behaviours, because that's how we explain ourselves. <laughs> we must have done that. 
because of the thought. But actually, it's mm. kind of interesting about whether the repetitive behaviour came first and then you've got right. thoughts that actually match in particular ways. So certainly for the childhood onset D, OCD, which is a severe tool, and it, the classical OCD does have a childhood onset, although it might wax and wane. And for a lot of kids, fortunately, it may not continue into adulthood. It'll not to the same severity. Then actually the behaviour might come first and then the thinking and, pattern to match comes later. And, and is the pattern of I feel like I need to – wash my hands or check that the door is locked, I do it, I then feel a bit calmer and then it rises up again. Did I really check the door? Could I have left it kind of half locked but you can actually push it open so that you feel uncomfortable again? Then you go and do it again and every time you do it again, you're kind of reinforcing this uh, this uncomfortable reward, feel better cycle. And then probably you get this other pushback of, no, you don't need to do that. But that makes you feel really uncomfortable and you try and resist until you can't anymore because you feel too anxious. Is that kind now, of it? Yes. And for those of us mm. listening to this, you've got to get the video on YouTube and see this hand signals that James was just making of little circles <laughs> running around, right? A reverberating circus. That's exactly what's going on between the frontal part of the brain and more primitive other bits, right? reverberating circuits. So the whole neurobiology of OCD is said to be one of reverberating circuits. It's a stuck. It's a, it's a mouse in a wheel going round, round, round. And the faster it runs, the wheel just goes round, round, round. Of reverberating yep. circuits. And you can't get off. And the more you actually do it. So every time you try to do it, to do the behavior, to relieve the anxiety, actually, it doesn't work. The anxiety goes up. So I've checked three times. Now, you might say, well, that's it. Move on. Go, no, I've checked three times. I've got to check it again. So people are stuck in the behaviour to propose it to relieve the anxiety, but the anxiety is actually not relieved. The behaviour itself just continues. Yep. And then the belief about if I stop, what will happen? Something catastrophic. So there will be a consequence of that to myself and often to others, very distressing to others if I stop. And I, therefore, I can't stop. And in fact, the more I do it, the more I reinforce, rather than reduce the anxiety, actually, the more I increase the anxiety. The faster I run yep. in that little wheel, the faster it, you know, ever been stuck in one of those wheels you can't get off or one of those spinny round things in a playground and the faster it goes, you can't get off. Yeah. And in fact, you have to hang on tighter. That's kind yeah. of what's going on in your head. So, so there seem to be some parallels with addictive behaviour in that, you know, I, I want to give up alcohol uh, and I'm determined to, but I feel more and more uncomfortable and just having one drink will relax me and then the next day it's even harder. There's a similar cycle in some ways? Yes, similar cycle. Now, what a debate about the brain circuitry, to the extent to which it's the same. Anyone's interested, go to our podcast on addiction. Very similar circuitry between the front of the brain and the subcortical areas or the bits that drive these kind of motor behaviours. This is all my favourite topic, of course, Jane, because this is the this is the brain in the back seat driving, and you're in the front seat thinking about what's going on. But it's got its foot yes. on the accelerator. It's got its foot on the accelerator, and it's actually the more you think about it, actually, this is such fun. I do like the kind of roundabout in the playground idea. And if you've ever been on one yeah. of those things that's spinning, right, and the faster it spins, the after your danger of being thrown off, and in fact, you're more and more fearful the faster it goes, and you have to hold on tighter. You've got no choice. Well, because- you're stuck in it. After at some point, the option of stepping off is is, is gone. Like I had my, my, my opportunity to step off, but now it's going too fast. I'm I'm not going to be able to do that. Exactly. And if you ever see someone in an OCD spiral or a spin, that's exactly what you see. So when I was much younger, we used to have the experience of treating severe OCD in hospitals. So people would come into hospital who would wash 
like their hands, 45 times in the morning before doing anything. Or they'd have to redress many, many times or several other, you know, behaviours of that kind of nature, right? And the more they did it, so in your theory, in a sense, the classic theory, where anxiety goes down, actually anxiety goes up the more they do the behaviour, the more they can't get off the spinning wheel of it. And somebody has to step in and stop it. So taking the playground analogy of the, of the spinning thing, somebody has to slow the thing down and then somebody has to stop it in order for you well, to get off, in order for you to actually well, get let, off. Yeah, well, we'll get to that in a moment. But two things. The first is I get it, but only in hotel rooms. So when I, when I go away for a couple of nights and I'm in a hotel, the only time I – when I'm leaving the hotel for the last time – you know, okay, I'm off, I'm heading off home now. I have to check the hotel room, like under the bed, under every pillow that I haven't left something about 18 times. But I never get it at, at home. And, and you know, I haven't stayed in many hotels over the last year and a half. So, so it's quite a minor thing. It might last for five minutes. And as soon as I shut the door behind me, it's totally gone. I don't have any anxious feelings about I forgot something. So... um so some people might just have it in very specific circumstances. But let's go to causes. Um, what causes it? Genetics, environment. I'm guessing, like every other thing in our entire personality, it is a combination of those two. Yes. Although the, the increasingly the sort of brain developmental bit of this. So for a long time, a lot of psychology and a lot of um, analytical psychiatry, whatever, talked a lot about the environmental things and, you know, tried to come up with psychological explanations, um, didn't go very far. As a treatment, it didn't work. So it didn't work nearly as well. So uh, talking therapies and cognitive therapies without the behavioural bit just didn't work. And more and more in the brain imaging area, in the genetics area, and in following the lifetime trajectories, the lifetime courses of this, theories related to abnormal brain development. So the circuitry being formed in ways through childhood and then, and then elaborated by environmental experiences to come back, making it worse. So there's a really interesting example. So genetics, yeah, is one of the components. Runs in families, you bet. So there's a strong genetic component. But when brain development goes off track, as I was mentioning earlier on, like in autism or in certain other areas, you get really high rates. There's some really interesting things like childhood infection with streptococcal bacteria and a, a, side, set, a side effect of an immune response, which can wipe out, and this is really bad, can wipe out your kidneys, can wipe out your heart. But guess what? It can precipitate OCD. The antibodies forming wow. part of the thing for the brain. Yes, yeah, a very specific syndrome associated with that. And increasingly, people are looking at that circuitry during development. So, what should be the inhibitory pathways? I love your uh, hotel room example. Right? Okay, I've been known to check the old hotel room because you know if you've left <laughs> you've left the charger behind, you've left the phone it's behind, a hassle. Out of there. it happens all the time. Okay, so everyone's got to check the hotel because you've had so many things you've left in hotel rooms. Who could know there was such room of space under a bed in a hotel room? But it's gone, you know. But that's the important thing. The inhibitory thing is to go, okay, I've done it once or maybe twice, but I've still got to catch the plane. i still got to go. i still got to leave. And you do it and you close the door, the inhibitory bit overrides it. The problem in OCD is the inhibitory bit fails to override it. There's no stop button. There's no how do you get off this roundabout. And so that, as the brain develops... People may think the brain developing is developing more and more connection. What the brain does when it develops is it, de- it develops inhibitory pathways. It inherits stopping stuff. That's actually how you learn to walk and talk, is by not all the nerve cells going off at the one time, but by inhibiting the ones that shouldn't be talking 
at the right time to actually have a coherent movement conversation right. speaking pattern. So here, the theory is that the inhibitory pathways that turn those processes off have not developed in appropriate ways or are chaotic, are hard to engage. Now, environmentally, things may then vary. So some of the things I mentioned, like infection and other things that happen to interfere with brain development, may then uh, be associated with that. And then, of course, there are other experiences. So people may have had certain sorts of traumatic experiences. They may have had other things that have happened along the way, happened in particular circumstances, so become conditioned in certain things. Something terrible did happen in some particular circumstance. And that has then elaborated that, you know, the reason not to inhibit it has become real in the external world in particular ways, making it very hard. And then if you, if you imagine the brain developing and getting stuck in those pathways, the more of those pathways that persist, you're then taking that vulnerability with you into life. Now, often as kids grow up who have got OCD-like behaviour, as their brain develops more inhibitory pathways, it becomes less severe or it stops. So like a number of other childhood conditions doesn't persist into adulthood. Unfortunately for others, it recurs in certain periods. So often we see when people are depressed or they develop another particular thing or anxiety, that then their OCD comes back in those mm. situations. And so although they've got it under control in normal circumstances, it emerges. There's some particular issues, like after having had a baby postnatally, certain other kind of bits, being depressed for other reasons. Then other stuff happens. Imagine COVID, right? Outbreak yeah. of infection in the real world. Do you remember in the first three months of the whole COVID thing, what you were told to do every 10 minutes? Wash your hands. Wash your hands, yes. Wash every surface. Clean every surface. Don't sneeze. Don't breathe. Don't 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 anything. Well, someone I know actually who has a bit of hand-washing OCD said to me around that time, Bet all you guys are feeling pretty stupid now. See? I'm set. Well, sadly, sadly, a lot of people with OCD who had feared infection and, and, and have been trying to use their brain, they've been trying to use rational thoughts to override that kind of stuff, suddenly are being told by every chief health officer in the world yes. that actually anything you touch, any doorknob, oh, it's a classic, any doorknob you touch, any key you put in, you could have caught COVID. Mm. And then worse, and this is a bit I think not well understood by others, worse, you might have given it to somebody else. You know, and, that, and then people are terrified of that. I've given it to my family, I've given it to kids, I've given it to the neighbour. So you then have the avoidance and disconnection from all of those particular things. And so, so sometimes the environmental circumstances are completely outside your control, like COVID, mm. or other circumstances, you know, which are really difficult to control. That's why I raised the childbirth and the postnatal one and you're in mucky, difficult situations and everything else that really override the situation and you cannot get it under control. You are on yeah. that spinning playground, whirly-girly thing, yeah. and you can't get off. So so we'll talk about treatments in a moment, but I was at a dinner once, and someone said, there are about maybe eight or nine people there, someone said, let's go around the table, everyone tell us your OCD behaviour. And we went around the table, and everyone had something. You know, usually it was pretty minor, but for me it was a hotel room thing, someone else was checking the windows, and so it seemed like a very common th thing to do that to some extent. But the key is, how do you know when a little routine or habit you have is entering OCD territory to the extent that you, you need to seek advice or treatment? And I'm guessing the answer is when it starts to interfere with your life. But then how do you know that? 
Yes, well, some people will tell you, I think, frankly. It's really interesting because it used to be thought when I was young. Boy, that was a long time ago. When I was young, <laughs> it was thought to be very rare. Wow, what a weird thing to think and do. That must be really weird. Mm. Ordinary people out there in the real world couldn't be really doing that stuff every day of the week. Guess what? We went out and started doing population surveys. So something that was thought to be like one in 500 or one in 1,000 turned out to be like, one or two in a hundred, and then if you took a bit more, you know, slightly actually quite common. But people are very good at hiding it. Like, people are really good at hiding what they do in private. So a lot of people have OCD behaviours, but they incorporate them in a way into their life that they remain hidden or not known to others. Why did you just spend 25 minutes in the bathroom? None of your business. Uh, why did you, you know... Why did dinner take so long to prepare? None of your business. You know, so people keep a number of their rituals, a number of their things under control. When you went to intrusive thoughts, you know, things that are really unpleasant thoughts that people have, you know, ideas that they might sexually assault their neighbour's children or they might have sex with their relatives or that they might catch infection in a really peculiar way. Often people just don't tell anyone, right? So they've got the idea, but it's very shameful and it's very unacceptable. It's an intrusive thought. It's a very unpleasant thought. And often it's become linked to a specific situation. So when they're in that situation, they have that thought. Just don't tell anybody. So actually you go around and say that and you find almost all of us have intrusive thoughts at times. And almost all of us have developed from one situation or another. I love your hotel room one. You know, have developed a behaviour in a particular situation, which is really annoying, but, you know, we don't get away. So all of that, that's normal, okay? That's just the brain chucking in stuff that you don't worry about. When it gets into these much more uh, reverberating loops that we were talking about, either around the thoughts, but particularly around the compulsive behaviours. So you know you're doing something 15 times or 20 times and you cannot proceed and you can't stop it. You can't inhibit it. Now, your hotel room, James, you left. You're not the person who's still in the hotel room. I'm not still there. (laughs) You're not the person where they ring up from reception, you know, at midday. Are you still in that room? Don't worry, I've just got to check one more time. (laughs) Yeah, yeah I, didn't ring up, I didn't ring up my wife, Lucy, and say, look, I am coming home. I've changed to a later flight. I'm confident of being able to get out of this room in the next two hours. <laughs> so that's an interesting thing. So so quite impaired and quite whatever. Um, um, there are people in a lot of professional jobs and a lot of other areas who do have significant OCD. They've got it under control just enough that – they don't come forward for care. So the ones we see who come for help are those where either someone they live with or they work with or others has become aware of it and said, you know what, you probably could do something about that. You could probably save about two hours a day or there's been some consequence. You know, people have very severe hand washing and they've really washed their hands. I'm doing this in front of the camera again. To the extent that their hands have gone red and raw from particular issues or they've done something, they've pulled their hair out or they've done other particular things in particular ways that is really causing great distress to themselves or others. So the distress, the impairment, the persistence, and really the failure to be able to stop it. So the classic, <clears throat> I think Dr. Freud was said to have said this, uh, stop it. And if you can't stop it, actually you're in trouble. You know, you're actually... Right, that's the test. Actually, yeah. Can you actually... So, so the-, the test is, the test is stop it for a day. And if you can't, you you might need some assistance. Is that that's a good yeah. simple test? I like yeah. simple tests. So on the if you do the thing twice, right? Can you stop it and walk away? You know, can you actually go? Yes, I can. And then you go, okay, do it. 
I just don't want it at the moment. And then you have, yeah, and then to a really interesting, you have behavior therapists involved. They get the second time, we go, okay, we'll stop it moving now. I go, oh, just one more, just one more. Okay, one more, one more. Then I'll promise I'll go. (gasps) One more. And then they do one more. And it is the case then of the spinning wheel getting faster. They do one more. Yeah. And then, uh, twice. Can I do one more again? No. (laughs) And actually, 15 times later, it's entirely out of control. The person's entirely incapable then of stopping the thing. And that's, you know, so clearly in these situations. Now, this is one of these things of also earlier kind of intervention. If you've got kids who are in these kind of situations, to come back to the developmental thing, you don't want to build brain circuits like this. You want to be able to actually. The great thing about dealing with kids sometimes is sometimes parents and others can interfere. <laughs> you can know they can pick the kid up and go and stop it. So the classic issue here is actually first stopping the behavior and then the next big step is actually being able to go back into the situation again exposure something we've discussed a lot james but exposure again with this other bit stopping it otherwise known technically as response prevention otherwise plain language stop it with with kids is a good way to help them stop it rewards you know if you if you don't wash your hands i'll give you a Give you a lolly, give you 10 points. And when you get 100 points, you get a new book or something like that. For kids who've really got OCD, not really. Uh, for ordinary kids, yep. I mean, in a sense, what you're trying to do is, of course, in one sense, creating distraction, rewards. But a lot of the things around rewards and even things around punishment, in particular things, actually don't work very well. It's actually this weird thing of, if you think of it in the circuitry or the analogy we've been using, it's actually being able to slow the thing down or stop it. So actually, then what happens What's, what's difficult is when you stop it, then the anxiety goes up, right? Oh, I've got to do this, i got to do this. And you've got to be stopping it long enough that the anxiety then starts to go down over time. Is that once you've actually stopped and, and will it? You know, because when the anxiety goes up, you're not, it's not like you think, oh, well, this is fine because it's going down again. You're just thinking it's going up and it's going to continue to go up. Are you confident that it will eventually? The therapist, the parent, the other has to be confident, has to exude confidence, has to look up in those airline pilots, sure I know how to fly this thing, what could possibly go wrong. Yes, you, the external bit, the external brain, the inhibitory bit, has to be absolutely confident that anxiety will go down. But does the evidence show us that it will eventually go down if you resist washing your hands? Yes. But if you're the person in the situation, do you believe a word of that? No. No. (laughs) Of course not. You're not me. You've got no idea what it's like to be in there. You know... But it is that particular thing of being able to get off the spinning wheel and actually do it. So that's really hard. So this is where actually the assistance of others is really hard. So it's one of those ones that's really hard to override just by thinking about it. So this is the classic of behaviour therapy, the action overriding, and then the thoughts and the anxiety will get themselves back under control if you can. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah. We often think, and much of our discussion, James, is you've got the idea, if you think first, the action will follow. This is a case of if you take the action first, the thinking will follow. Because your key question, your key question will the anxiety go down? Yes. If you are able to discontinue the behaviour long enough. People on their own find that almost impossible to just from within their own resources be able to not go ahead and complete the behaviour in the particular situation. So you've got to, that that hard handbrake, that hard stop has to get into the situation. And then they have to have the experience that actually I didn't affect everything. The world didn't end. And also I was able then to continue on with whatever else I was planning to do today 
you know, in a classic kind of way. So that seems like a key point. It's really important if you do manage to leave the house without, you know, checking how you are 15 times to actually stop for a moment and say, you know, and connect the fact that you left to the fact that nothing bad happened and use that as a kind of positive reinforcement that you can uh, you can not do these behaviours and everything's okay. Yes. So that is the experiential, that is the observed, okay? And in a classic yeah. cognitive behavioural kind of sense, for many anxiety behaviours, that'd be enough. Look, that proves it, okay? All right, okay, I believe that. That's pretty true. OCD's actually a kind of special kind of craziness, though. So people do that and they go, okay, no, nobody got infected, nobody died, the world didn't end, the catastrophe didn't happen. Now, is that sufficient to stop you doing it again? No. No. <laughs> Because how do you know? Because next time, how do you know? Might happen next time. <laughs> That's right. Maybe I just got lucky this time. That's right. So people come up with the most elaborate explanations as to why it didn't happen on that occasion, oh. but why it will happen on the following occasion, right? Oh. So this is where the brain, the brain's a marvellous storyteller. People are incredibly imaginative. The stories of infection transmission associated with OCD just blow my mind. Like, I've worked in medicine, infectious disease. I've had some really weird stories in my life. But people with OCD come up with much more creative, imaginative ways in which infection could have spread or they could have caused the thing. So there's this kind of disconnect between knowing that it doesn't happen and, and actually having the experience that you can stop it and still what people think in the background. So often with this situation, I have an agreement with the people that I manage with this condition, we don't talk about that stuff anymore. We know that they still think it. I know they still think it. They know they still think it, but we're not talking about it. Because actually talking about it actually allows it to elaborate and go further again. As distinct from, no, 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 we're not talking about that. We're doing. We're getting off and we're getting on with our lives and we're continuing the other things. Accepting that that potential to end up down those rabbit holes again is still there. But let's leave it alone. Let's leave it alone and move on. So it's actually one of those areas where really skilled behaviour therapists, people who are quite skilled in this area need to work with people. Because then the really tricky bit is if you've got them to stop, okay, you've got to go back into the situation again and stop again, right? So if you've dragged the person out of the bathroom or out away from the particular thing, then the next step in treatment is to go back in. Okay. Because you've got to you've got to rewire those pathways. You've got to get them in the habit of going into the bathroom, washing their hands once and leaving. Got it. You've got to rewire. So the environmental contingencies, the environmental things that normally trigger that kind of behaviour, the signposts, if you like, you've got to walk in and ignore the signposts and you've got to stop the behaviour. Now, that is really hard. Okay, so there's this re-exposure bit and there's this response prevention bit. You've got to get the response prevention and often people need a lot of assistance to stop in the first place. And then they've got to do the hard bit. They've got to go back in there again. And they've got to do that a number of times. It is rewiring. This is a rewiring situation. This is not a just thinking about the situation and it is not a just talking, talking about it. Or other things that people do, don't, people get told all sorts of things. Don't think it. You know, when you, when you have an intrusive, unpleasant thoughts, the moment someone says, don't think about it, right? That is terrible <laughs> advice, isn't it? Isn't it? Don't think it. Like that goes back to something I heard when I was a kid. Don't think about an elephant. Well, I wasn't. Now I am. <laughs> exactly. Don't think about sex. Don't think about infection. Don't think about all the terrible things. Immediately someone says that to you, you go, what? 
<laughs> I was already having thoughts I couldn't control in that area, and you want me not to think about it because. And a lot of a lot of psychological experimentation has been done in this area. There's the best way to make people think about it. So that don't work, or think something else. That doesn't work either. Actually, these well, are no, intrusive, but, but, uncontrolled but thoughts. Uh, no, but isn't think something else? I mean, that is a um, uh, an established and important. Therapy, isn't it? Distraction. If you're having repetitive anxiety, anxious thoughts, take your mind somewhere else. Think about something nice. Think about how you were, uh, you know, playing touch footy the other day and it went really well or whatever. We'll return to this in other episodes about changing your mood and changing your world and changing anxiety. Yeah, because some of those other things, using other types of thinking strategies to elicit other emotional states – Positive thinking, pleasant things you've done, make you feel that way, remember how you feel. Very helpful in other psychological problems, yes. Not OCD. OCD, no. (laughs) No. You can see why it's got its own little category, right? It it, it doesn't sit well with other psychological disorders because it's got this real hard-wiring stuff built in. Mm. So the thought suppression, thought distraction, all this sort of stuff, you know, talking about it, blaming your mother, talking about your childhood – doesn't and and the problem is distraction is quite pleasant. You're taking your mind from something that is worrying to something that is nice. It's a pleasant thing to do. It's not always easy, but it's it's going to a better place. Whereas exposure, you need to walk back into that situation where you feel incredibly uncomfortable and you desperately want to wash your hands and not. Like it takes some courage, not just once, but many, many times to do that. This is the bit we have to do something that feels horrible and it eventually will make you better. Exactly. Courage squared, courage quantified, you know. So this is where distraction, all those other things you talk about, don't work. So people offer all these sort of things, you know, because they sound nice, they sound reasonable. And in some other situations, they are helpful. In this situation, no. What are we doing? We're going back in the trenches. We're going back into the mud heap. We're going back in. Go, What? We just got out of there. How can we possibly go back in there again? Because we're going in there to rewire, to get out of this situation, we, to take away the fear, the terror of what would happen if you don't do the particular thing by actually having repeated experiences of being in that situation that do not result in the thing. And actually, and more importantly, you can yourself then leave the bathroom after two hand washings or you can leave the house after two checking of the doors and windows, you know, or you can walk down the street and not have the terrible thought that you're going to hurt someone or assault someone or do something terrible in a particular way. Or if you don't do something, if you don't walk in a certain way, if you don't count in a certain way, catastrophes won't have happened. Well, I, it's, it's I mean, really I, get the one, I get the one about counting and I get the one about hand washing, but what beha- how does behavioural therapy work about how, walking down the street and not having a horrible repetitive thought that you're going to attack someone. How do you how do you do that one? Right. So we've split up here into two bits. The compulsive behaviour bit is really hard, but in some ways it's kind of easier, right? Because there's yeah. actually a very specific thing, the hand washing, the checking, the particular uh, ritualistic behaviour the person has that you are specifically focusing on. And a bit as I was well, saying- Well, I, I think you've got more control over your body than you have over your mind. You can say, you know, don't touch your face. That is your repetitive behaviour. But it's much harder to say don't have that thought. Got it. Where do thoughts come from? Behaviours mm-hmm. we can see, we can control, you know, 
you tie your hands behind your back and stop me touching your face. You know, you can do all sorts of things <laughs> in a behaviour way. Well, you can in behaviour therapies do all sorts of things. You can physically have kids and as behaviour therapists, you can have people physically actually intrude and stop the person doing their behaviour with their permission, you know, in the appropriate way. You can actually do it and that then allows the person to pass through that period of very high anxiety down to the period of being less aroused and not have the consequence that they predicted. So in a funny way, the behaviour therapy, although very hard, is more sort of concrete, straightforward. Not having thoughts, not having intrusive thoughts. So intrusive thoughts is an interesting one because do you want to never have the thought or never be distressed by the thought? Do you want that choice, James? Well, I would say if my thought is I'm going to attack someone and kill them, it would be hard to have that thought without it being a bit distressing. But the best would be not to have it, but the second best would definitely – I mean, it would still be good to be able to have that and think, oh, that's fine. Although, would that make me a psychopath if I could have that thought and not be concerned about it? No, you're not a psychopath. Right. Um, this is really interesting because actually in some ways, pure obsessions, if you like, is a harder therapeutic target. If people really want to be rid of the thought completely. Mm. They never want to have the thought. That's a pretty tall mountain to climb. As distinct from, look, if you say, look, we all have intrusive thoughts at times. We all have thoughts and think, oh, that's a terrible thought. I shouldn't have that thought. <laughs> you know, that's a terrible, I'm not going to tell anyone I've ever had that thought, which is, of course, what people had all the time about infection, about sex, about rule breaking, all sorts of things they've thought. Do you know that old Catholic idea, you can go to hell just for the thought? Well, hell, mm. would, be, hell would be full. I mean, hell would just be 100% yeah. full. I mean, you know, I remember being told this as a child. That's a mortal sin to have that thought. Hang on a second. All I did was think it. I'm not even sure where the thought came from. But I'm guilty. Guilty, you know. So much better to say, look, intrusive thoughts happen. If you're not distressed by them or preoccupied with them, you don't tend to go back to them. You just go, well, that's a random thought. Don't be too upset. So actually trying to decrease the anxiety associated with the thought for thoughts is a much better therapeutic target than trying to actually suppress or get rid of the thought. Okay. So, you know, that's we in a particular kind of way. Is so, so how just, do you do that? We are trying to detach the thought from the anxiety, which leads you back to the thought. You know, we had a discussion a minute ago. We said, if I tell you not to think about this, right? Yeah. You think about it, right? Hmm. Well, anxiety tells you to think about your thought. Funny way of putting it. But if you have a thought they're going to harm someone and then you get anxious, oh, I really am going to harm someone, what do you start thinking about? Am I, going to harm so- am I going to harm someone? You get this circle of anxiety so, driving so, recurrence. So is it, the then better, is it better than to just think, okay, I've had a thought, almost an image of me attacking someone, hurting someone, rather than think, what a disaster. If I do that, my life will be ruined and their life might be ruined too. Um, rather than think that, to think, that's a weird thought. Oh. You know, just to, to detach yourself from it, like to see it but not to make it real in a way or imagine it becoming real. Exactly. Anxiety makes it real. Anxiety makes it actually powerful. Anxiety makes it, look at me, look at me. I'm something terrible. Look at me again. Think about me again. Whereas actually if you go, mm, you know, random thought, random thoughts for today. Okay, let's move on and have coffee. You know, it doesn't necessarily stick in a particular and way. And can you and practice that? You can practice it. What the, so what you want to do is re- reduce the distress or the anxiety associated with the thought, but also partly to relabel it as random thoughts. Everyone has random thoughts. Now, see, people see me. The trouble is, people see meaning, James, in their thoughts all the time. I mean, I don't yeah, know why. <laughs> it must mean something that I thought this right. We used to have when I was, when I was younger. 
there used to be a whole psychiatric classification, acute homosexual panic, that people had thoughts about same-sex attractiveness, which caused them great distress. Oh, my God, I just had this thought. Does this mean I'm suddenly going to change and this will be terrible and catastrophic? And we go, well, actually, everyone has those thoughts. It's like, so what? <laughs> you know, and a, a change in internal environment, people, oh, well, same-sex attractiveness or with the thought that somebody else, guy I knew was attractive, so what? Like, it doesn't matter. Tomorrow's thought is, what am I having for breakfast? You know, it's just a series of thoughts. Where do thoughts kind of come from? Where do things? So when we attach great meaning to thoughts or catastrophic kind of ideas, we, we make them more powerful themselves, as distinct from... Brains generate random thoughts all the time. They're not, they're not all significant, like dreams. Everyone thinks dreams are important. Brains generate dre- Brains generate dreams. So, do you have to get upset about yeah, it? Yeah, right. Do they have to be anything? Yeah, no. no. That's what happens when you're right. asleep. So mm. you know, they're if just, just weird. They're just weird. And brains generate weird. But brains generate all sorts of thoughts in a particular way. But we attach meaning to them, and then we attach. Oh my God. What does it say about me? Or, you know, you just said, am I a psychopath? Am I a paedophile? Am I a sex offender? Am I a particularly, you know, particularly, what is it about American television and serial killers and violence, you know, the preoccupation with, uh, you know, those kind of characters, am I one of them, you know, type stuff. As this thing from brains have random thoughts. And if they're just random and they go, you just let them go. The moment you get preoccupied with them, and if you've got if you've got the vulnerability or the predisposition to get stuck on those things, and you attach them, you can. So, for people who've become very stuck on obsessional thoughts, that's actually quite a hard thing to do then, because often they've then built a whole thinking patterns, or they become conditioned to particular environments. They have those thoughts in particular situations, and then they find it very hard to unpick those circuits. As distinct from, ah, oh, well. I'm in that situation. I had that thought again. So what? What's for breakfast? You know, let's move on. What are we yeah, doing for right. the rest of the day? You know, and then then you just go well. Some degree obsession. So I, I much prefer the idea. Brains are prone to this kind of stuff. <laughs> you know, mm. The wiring is prone to this kind of stuff, and it's it has served advantages to have rituals and ways of thinking and anxiety stuff for fearful. But you know, occasionally it goes off the other direction. It's unhelpful. Yeah. 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 But we're imaginative people and lots of benef- lots of great things come from that. Exactly. The flip side. I could just take so that one step further. Well, brains are creative. They throw up ideas. They make associations. They see links. We otherwise call that creativity. Let's have some more yeah. of it. Let's just not get fussed about it. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Finally, role of medication in treating OCD. Yes. So having dished talking therapies and gone for behaviour therapies, not all brain re- rewiring proceeds as neatly as you can. And what I just said about stopping and getting off, and I think it's really hard. So if you think this is hardwired, it's really hard, even in great behaviour therapies. And so what was found back in about the 1960s is that some of the older tricyclic antidepressants, particularly those that affected serotonin in a big way, favourite drug at the time, a drug called clomipramine, actually seemed to work specifically in this OCD stuff. And people said, well, that can't be true. Then came along the Prozac-like drugs, the SSRIs, and they work even better. So actually what you find is, these days, often for significant OCD, the best combination therapy is behaviour therapy plus one of the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And it remains somewhat of a mystery, but empirically true, as to why those specific drugs work so well for these reverberating-type circuits. Now, the ideal therapy often for severe OCD is the combinations. Is what what mm. clearly the drug is doing, allowing that moderation of that anxiety level that is not volcanic, it doesn't go through the roof. So the person can cope enough to then do the exposure 
on an ongoing basis. And once they've done that enough, hopefully rewire significantly. So a lot of people who've had episodes may require the medication treatment while combined with the behaviour treatment and may not need to continue with the medication after that in particular ways, but often make a really big difference. So this is one of those areas where if the behaviour therapy, which is good, is not sufficient, most of the really good psychologists will be saying, would you mind taking a few of the drugs as well? And we're going to do a lot better with this because we're going to get off this wheel. (laughs) We're going to get off and we're going to fix it. And that reducing, and if you see it as volcanic, the volcanic anxiety that goes with this is no ordinary anxiety. It's no, and the catastrophic mm-hmm. thinking that goes with it is no ordinary type thing. Not just a little bit obsessive personality. This is really hard. And people's lives are often really stopped. I mean, I do see surgeons who so couldn't stop hand washing, they couldn't operate. As to, you know, seeing airline pilots who couldn't do the particular things, they couldn't continue. People really cannot continue with their careers once these things overwhelm. But when they get back under control, they're perfectly nice, lovely people. You can well. They're perfectly nice, lovely people all the time. They just sometimes they have OCD, and then you, you or other professionals help them fix it, and then they can get on with things. Um, very interesting. I found that very interesting. If you have any questions, comments, want to suggest further topics for us to discuss, do get in touch at mindingyourmind2 at gmail.com. That's minding your mind numeral two at gmail.com. Minding Your Mind is supported by Future Generation Global and the generous philanthropic donations from families who support ongoing research into youth mental health. Further help is available from Headspace, Beyond Blue, Head to Health and Lifeline. Just Google them. You can call Lifeline on 13114. Talk to you next time.